0: Okay, so um, there is a website uh, that features reports by various anonymous people on churches around the world. Uh, You won't actually know that somebody from the website has visited your church until after the service you find a card in the collection bag. And the card says, The mystery worshipper has been here. Uh, A few days later, their report is posted on their website. As far as I know, so far the mystery worshipper hasn't been to St Barnabas. Um, But uh, if they do, we're not actually going to know about it until after they've left the building. Um, Each report covers different aspects of the visitor's experience, both positive and negative. Uh, Was the welcome warm and friendly? Uh, What sort of music do they play? Uh, how long are the sermons? Oh dear. And um, and uh, and what about the coffee? Well, how would it be uh, if the Lord Jesus came to St Barnabas? What would he say? Uh, in this section of Revelation, we've got reports by Jesus for seven real historical churches in Asia Minor. And uh, we've already discovered, haven't we, that these seven churches represent all churches around the world and all churches today. And uh, as we look at these letters over the next few weeks, we're going to see that again and again they speak to us. But what will Jesus say? Each letter follows the same pattern. At first there is an introduction telling us that Jesus is speaking and who he's speaking to. And then there's a word of commendation or praise. He says, I know this about you, and I'm pleased with you. Well done. And then there is a complaint. There is a but. And uh, we find that in all except two of these letters. And then there's a conclusion at the end. Make sure you listen, and if you do, then here is A promise. Here is a blessing of lasting significance for today and tomorrow. So let's follow the pattern through in this first letter. We begin with the introduction, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right. Now, why is Jesus addressing the angel of the church? I mean, why not the pastor? You know, why not the bishop? Why not the church council? We're not told explicitly. But you see, I think in the context of the book, Jesus is reminding us that the church is not merely a human organisation. We do tend to think of churches like that, don't we? We think of the church in the same way that we think of perhaps a business, or a school, or a club. The church is none of those things. The church is a spiritual organisation with a spiritual purpose and with access to all the spiritual resources of heaven to help us. And I think it reminds us that all of the challenges we face in church are ultimately spiritual and they can only be addressed successfully with heaven's help to the angel. Of the church in Ephesus. Right. So it's obviously that the first church is in Ephesus and in those days uh, Ephesus was a really significant city. Um, it had a population of about a quarter of a million people and it was on the coast about 50 miles away from the island of Patmos where John received his vision of the risen Christ. It was also the capital of Asia Minor, or what today we know as Western Turkey. It was a buzzing, commercial, and religious centre. I suppose in that way, rather like Cape Town today. And it was a popular tourist destination in those days, because one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was in that city, uh, the Temple of the Roman Goddess Diana. So, the church in Ephesus was in a very strategic location. Paul had visited it briefly on his second missionary journey, and on his third missionary journey, he settled there for two and a half years, because it was such an important centre for reaching the entire region for Christ. Interesting thing, when Paul moved on, uh, he left Timothy in charge, And tradition says that when Timothy left, he was followed by the Apostle John. The Apostle John became the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus. So in our passage, John is writing a letter to a church that he knows very well indeed. But of course this letter isn't actually from John at all, is it? Because the rest of verse 1, please look at it, says that these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that uh, those words come from the amazing vision at the end of chapter 1. And that vision is referred to in the introduction to each of these seven letters. Because each letter is from the eternal, divine Son of Man that John saw and heard on Patmos. So the words in this letter aren't human words. These are the words of Jesus, the Son of God, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus, of course, has already explained that the lampstands represent the churches. That's where Jesus is. He's walking among the churches. A few weeks ago, uh, Dr David Second uh, visited St Barnabas on a Sunday morning. Uh, I had no idea he was coming. It was absolutely marvellous to have him with us. But I have to confess that when he walked through the door, the first thought that went through my mind is, I wonder what he'll think of us. Well, uh, those of you who know him will testify that he's a man of few words. He didn't say much. I think he enjoyed it. But, But what if the Lord Jesus were with us? What would he say? Well, friends, he is with us. He walks among the lampstands. And unlike the mystery worshipper that I mentioned at the beginning, he doesn't just come on a one-off visit to a church he doesn't know and then simply disappear. I mean, we can't take that person's opinion seriously. I mean, they just had a superficial look. But Jesus walks among the lampstands. That actually is a very intimate thing to do. In the first book of the Bible, we're told that God came and walked in the garden, in the cool of the day. It's a picture of the, the intimate relationship between God and his friends, Adam and Eve. Of course, we know that that friendship was ruptured by sin at the fall, but now, amazingly, because of his grace, Jesus walks with us. So we should take his message Seriously, not only because of his authority as the divine son of man but also because of his intimate knowledge of every single church what will he say well it won't be superficial and we often do judge churches don't we by very superficial criteria well that won't be what Jesus says what does he say Well let's begin first with his commendation. There are some very encouraging positives aren't there in verses 2 and 3. I know, says Jesus at the beginning of verse 2. And all of these letters have that same phrase somewhere near the beginning. I know. What a great encouragement it is. Maybe you've gone through a hard time and you feel that nobody really understands you, and then you speak to a much-loved friend or a family member, and after a little while they say to you, I know. They haven't solved your problem, but what a difference it makes when there's someone out there who knows. Well, Jesus looks at the churches and he says... I know. What does Jesus know? Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. Now, a a casual glance at the notice board at the church in Ephesus would tell you that this was a very busy church indeed. I have no doubt that there were plenty of Bible studies, prayer meetings, programmes for every conceivable church activity. The welcome, the music, the catering, the cleaning, visiting the sick, and more besides. And these tasks weren't just left to a few keen people, because Jesus is addressing the entire church. So I take it that every member was actively involved in different aspects of church life. And if the leadership didn't always notice... Jesus says, I know, I know everything that you're doing for me, I know your hard work. And Jesus goes on, I know your discernment, have a look at the end of verse 2. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. And then verse 6, Jesus says, but... But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now the Nicolaitans are mentioned again in the third letter. We, We don't actually know that much about them. But from the context there, it seems that they encouraged immorality and idolatry in the churches. But you see, the Ephesian Christians were shrewd. Unlike many congregations today, they listened very carefully to what was said from the pulpit. And if it wasn't true to the gospel, they didn't hesitate to say so. So here was a church that had real discernment. There were certain things they would not tolerate. Now, I think that sounds rather shocking to us, doesn't it? Because our culture says that tolerance is a virtue. Uh, It's one of the few rules left, isn't it, in a lawless world. You can do pretty much anything you like, but you must be tolerant. And, of course, tolerance is a great virtue when we understand what that word really means, which is that other people should have the right to say what they believe, even if we profoundly disagree with them. But can I say, and have you noticed, that over the years the word tolerance has come to mean something different? Because when some people talk about tolerance, they are assuming that there is no such thing as absolute truth. So today, tolerance is not just allowing people to say things you disagree with, it's recognising that they might be right, you might be wrong, because, according to them, none of us really know anything. And so today, tolerance has come to mean that everybody might be right. And anybody who says, no, I think this is true, and that is not true, well, they're ignored, aren't they? People say, whatever you do, don't listen to him. He's intolerant. And yet, you see, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks absolute truth. He's God. What Jesus says is always absolutely true. So, you see, in church, there cannot be tolerance of every viewpoint. When something is clearly taught in the Bible and somebody comes into church and teaches something different, the church cannot and should not tolerate it. Because, you see, your spiritual health is at risk. People are being led astray. And Jesus says, I commend this church for their discernment, for their hard work, And then he continues in verse 2, I know your perseverance. Again in verse 3, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Now we're not told exactly what the precise nature of those hardships were. Most likely it had something to do with emperor worship. Uh, By this time, that had already been going on for several decades and it was being used by Rome as a way to hold their vast empire together. And emperor worship was imposed in different countries in all kinds of subtle ways. Uh, Maybe you wanted to serve an apprenticeship in order to start a particular trade. Well, when you finished your training... In order to practice that trade, you had to join a trade guild. And before you could do that, you had to make a public confession of the emperor as Lord and God. But of course the Christian couldn't do that. Uh, No doubt officials would come to your house and say to you, now look, hang on a moment, we know that the emperor... Uh, isn't a God, it's just his way of holding things together. So we bow and we make our confession, but, but we don't really mean it. Why don't you just go with the flow? And the Christian says, I can't. Uh, the Bible says there is only one God. I am to worship him alone. And so, over time, a small number of Christians in Ephesus were killed for not going with the flow. But much more commonly, uh, Christians ended up being socially and economically marginalised. They couldn't get those apprenticeships. They couldn't therefore get jobs. And they were viewed with great suspicion because they just would not go with the flow. And of course, in the same way today, if you and I don't bow down To the gods of the culture, it's not long before we find there is a cost. There's a sense of of not belonging, of being excluded. In some cases, you, you might actually lose your job, and I know some of you have experienced that personally or know people who have. And Jesus says, I know. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. So so this is real praise, real commendation. But let's move on. Because there's one area of church life where Jesus has a serious complaint. Come with me to verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, in all but two of these letters, there is a word of complaint from Jesus. And that tells us straight away, doesn't it, that there was never a golden age when the churches were chock-a-block full of perfect people without any problems. No, the rest of the New Testament tells us that was never, never the case. Churches have always been made of weak, sinful people. And here, Jesus says to the Ephesians, I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Whatever does he mean? Now, the commentators are divided about this. Is Jesus talking about their love for each other? Is he talking about their love for the outsider? Is he actually talking about their love for God? Love for Jesus? Now, of course, let me say up front that It is our love for Jesus that is the engine that drives all our other loves. A lack of love for my brothers and sisters at church or a lack of love for those living in darkness always comes back to a lack of love for Christ. But is that what Jesus is talking about here? I don't think so. This is where it gets really interesting. So, fasten your seatbelts and consider the context with me for a moment. What is the book of Revelation calling you and I to do? It's not an easy book, so it's good to stand back and ask that question. Well, it's calling us to worship, and it is calling us to witness. Let me support those statements. First, worship. All of Revelation is about worship. If you're writing an exam on it tomorrow, make a note. Last week we saw in chapter 1, do you remember this, that John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. In other words, John was in an attitude of worship. And it was while John was worshipping that he received a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ as Jesus is today. How did John respond? Well, he fell down, didn't he, before the Divine Lord, which is an attitude of worship.
1: And Revelation
0: also gives us plenty of solid reasons for worship. So if you cast your mind back to our first study in the book, uh, we said, didn't we, that as Revelation goes on, John is given... The big picture of what's really happening in the world, and why it's happening, and where it's going. And we said, didn't we, that it's a picture of ultimate reality that completely overturns the way that the world thinks. So the whole book is the result of worship, John's worship, and it gives us reasons why we should worship, and you know what it also shows us what true worship looks like. So, for example, in chapter 5, you don't need to turn to it, but in chapter 5, we get a glimpse of the worship that's taking place in heaven this morning. And chapter 5 says that millions of angels are gathered around the Lord Jesus, saying, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. But the book of Revelation is also calling us to witness because already in chapter 1 we've heard that John is in prison on Patmos. Now why is John in prison on Patmos? Chapter 1 verse 2 Because of the word of God and the testimony, that is the witness of Jesus Christ. And in verse 5 we're told that the first and greatest witness to the truth is Jesus Christ himself. John calls him the faithful witness. And as we go on through the book, we're going to hear about the testimony, the witness of Jesus Christ... How many times? Somebody tell me. What's the big number in Revelation? Pardon? Seven. Seven being the number of completeness, the number of perfection. And we're going to see that it is God's plan that his church, that means you and me, should be a witness to the world about Jesus Christ. Because God wants everybody in Cape Town to hear the good news and find the life that is only available in him so worship and witness are two of the monster themes in the book of Revelation and therefore it's hardly surprising is it that these two themes are at the heart of what Jesus has to say to the churches in these letters in chapters 2 and 3 Now we've already seen, haven't we, that the church at Ephesus got very high marks indeed from Jesus for their worship. Uh, The sermons, the Bible studies were fantastic. You couldn't fault them. But what about the witness? What difference had opposition and persecution made to their witnessing? Well, the clue lies in understanding what Jesus is talking about in verse 5. Please put your nose on verse 5. Where Jesus says to them, remember the height from which you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Jesus says that doing the things they did at first is the cure for the problem. So, if we put our detective hat on, the question we have to ask is, what were those things? Keep a finger in Revelation. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 19, on page 784. Acts 19, page 784. Now, while you're turning there, let me tell you that what we've got here is a flashback... To the moment forty years before when the church at Ephesus had just been planted. We're in chapter nineteen, verse one, page seven hundred and eighty four, which says this while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Now look across the page to verse eight right sorry, right hand column. Uh, Paul is still in Ephesus. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now pause on that. Can you see that Paul and his disciples were involved in an energetic evangelistic ministry for two years? Not just Paul by himself, notice, no, Paul and the disciples, the first Christians at Ephesus, what difference did their ministry make in the lives of those who heard it and believed? Did those lives change? Important question. Well, pay close attention and come with me please to verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now you see, the public witness of the first Christians at Ephesus was absolutely astonishing. They openly confessed their evil deeds. So this wasn't done in a huddle in church on Sunday morning. And they burned their pagan literature in public. And it was an extremely costly gesture because the value of the scrolls was... 50,000 drachmas and in the days before the EU and the downgrading of the drachma the footnote says that a drachma was a silver coin worth a day's wages and if you do the maths it means the value of those scrolls was 135 years wages so their witnessing hit their wallet did the witness achieve anything yes it did verse 20 The word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. So, these were some of the things that the Christians at Ephesus did at first. We'll come back to Revelation chapter 2 because it's now 40 years later, things have changed. Christians generally are under pressure. And it seems that they've become an inward-looking religious club. They still thoroughly enjoy the sermons on Sunday, but they have lost the love that takes risks for Jesus. And so at the end of verse 5, Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, if you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Brothers and sisters, that is an extremely serious warning. Because the church is supposed to shine the light of Jesus into the darkness of the outside world so that people out there, unbelievers, can see Jesus for who he really is. But if the church isn't doing that, well, the lampstand's not doing its job, is it? Albert Camus was a popular French uh, author of a generation or so ago. He was also an unbeliever. Uh, He was in darkness. How did a man like that feel about the church of his day? Listen to what he wrote. Quote, The church is offered... To introduce us to God. But when we accept the invitation and arrive at the royal palace, we see protocol, pomp and circumstance, business, buildings, plans, programs. But the king is not there. End quote. Jesus says, If your church is not a lampstand, it's not a church. I'll take it away. Or to put it slightly differently, the best worship, the best Bible teaching, the most uplifting sermons, the most brilliant discipleship programs will never please me, says Jesus, if it doesn't send you out as a witness. Into the world. And in the end, if nothing changes, I'll close you down. Well, it seems that, at least to begin with, the Ephesian church listened to Jesus because we know from extra biblical sources that there was still a lively church in Ephesus in the fifth century. But at some point along the way, it disappeared. In fact, there was a very long period in history where nobody really knew where the entire city of Ephesus had been. And it was, I think, only in the 1860s that they discovered the ruins underneath a swamp. But what would Jesus say about us? Do we have the love that is willing to take risks for Jesus? Are we persevering in, in faithful, courageous witness to the world out there? Has our love cooled? Have we gone low profile? Is the truth in fact that we just want a quiet life? Because if that is true of us, Jesus would say, we have forsaken our first love. So what's to be done? How are we to avoid the judgment of verse 5, of of Jesus potentially coming and closing us down? Jesus gives a clear command. Come with me to the beginning of verse 5. Jesus says, remember the height from which you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Can you see that that Jesus commands us to do three things? Remember, repent, repeat. First, remember. Look back, says Jesus, at those days when your love for me, Jesus, was so warm that you couldn't wait to tell other people what Jesus was doing in your life or about some of the things you were learning at church. You were inviting people to things. You you wanted to talk to them about Jesus. Remember those times when, even though there were very difficult things going on in some people's lives, bereavements, Um, people being retrenched money worries the church gathered round and, and loved one another in powerful ways that love was visible it was tangible and remember those days when you were singing not just because you liked the music but because your heart was bursting with love for Jesus remember secondly Repent. Repent of whatever it is that might have dampened your love for Jesus in the meantime. Might be pride. Uh, We just feel so good about ourselves. We think we're doing really rather well. And the more we feel good about ourselves the less likely it is that we're going to be amazed by that glorious vision of Jesus that we saw last week in chapter 1. Jesus on the throne of the entire universe. Maybe it's our routine. We're just so used to coming to church, to reading the Bible, to, to singing choruses, it doesn't mean quite as much to us as it did at first. Or perhaps for some people it's fear, fear of what might happen to me if I start talking to the people out there about Jesus or is it compromise something that we know is wrong in our lives but we won't give it up and and it's choking the love for Jesus that we used to feel in our hearts and so, so there's a cloud this morning between me and Jesus but we won't repent Well, Here's another one, maybe it's a lack of discipline. Uh, We're trying to squeeze so many things into our over-busy lives so we don't go to bed early enough. Uh, It's sometimes said, isn't it, that the battle for time with Jesus in the morning is won or lost the night before. Uh, We stay up late. In the morning we have to get to work, but we do need our beauty sleep. And so we get up later and there isn't just enough time to read the Bible and pray before the business of the day. And we never catch up and the days and then eventually the weeks go by and we find we haven't really made time to listen to God at all or to pray. Jesus says, repent. And repent in the Bible means... Not just that I change my mind, but that I also change my behaviour. Repentance in scripture is always those two things together, you can't separate them. And remember please that Jesus is not here speaking to individuals, he's writing to a church. We have a corporate responsibility for one another in these things. That's what love means. So are we. Are we encouraging one another in these things? Remember, repent, repeat. Do the things you did at first. Shine the light of God's truth into the lives of the people around you who don't yet love Jesus. I can't help noticing that by the design of an unseen hand, you and I are hearing these things one week before our carol service. Carol service next Sunday morning. The carol service is perfectly designed for unbelievers. They might not come to another service at church throughout the rest of the entire year, but for reasons they probably don't even understand, they'll come to a carol service, if you ask them. Frank Retief is our preacher. He has in the past been called the Billy Graham of South Africa. So whoever comes next Sunday morning is going to hear the Gospel. And more than that, we're going to give everybody next Sunday morning a little card on which they can write down any question they might have about the Christian faith. And the following Wednesday, we're going to have a Seeker's Supper in our home where we're going to get to know these people and I'm going to do my best to answer their questions. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Is the Lord Jesus speaking to us this morning? Jesus says, Are you listening? Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. That's a picture of salvation which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are not remote and far off, but you are walking among the lampstands. You love us. You know everything about us. Thank you for your life-giving word and the fellowship that we enjoy, which flows from it. But Lord, you've also called us to shine the light of your truth into the darkness around us. And so this morning, as we hear your word of complaint to the Ephesian church then Lord we confess that some of us sadly yes we have fallen short we too have forsaken our first love forgive us Lord help us to remember how we marvelled at your love for us when we were first converted and how we were bursting to share it with other people Lord, grant us the grace to to repent of our indifference and by the power of your spirit help us to do the things we did at first starting today taking risks for you, Lord Jesus so that your word might spread widely and grow in power even as it did so long ago. Amen.